Welcome back to Educate Ebony, the metal edition. I'm Ebony and we're on episode 11. This is pretty exciting. I think you're definitely going to love this episode. But before we get there, we're going to recap last week where I spoke to the Educate Ebony artist, Kyle Wagstaff. If you don't already, go check him out on Instagram. He is at Kyle underscore Wagstaff underscore art. He's got some cool stuff up there. So go check him out. But he told me to listen to Shogun by Trivium uh, while drawing. And that was a hard task for me. I'm not a drawer. Not at all. So if you want to see my efforts at trying to draw my own logo, head to my socials at Educate Ebony on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. Let me know what you think. I try my best. But let's talk about Shogun. Mm, to put it bluntly, it wasn't an album that excited me. It was very easy to listen to and... I think that technically they're great. They sound good. That's not in question here at all. Matt Heafy's vocals, brilliant. He's a great singer. Clean, screams, love it all. And their riffs, great, also good. But they're just not exciting to me, I don't think. They're bread and butter metal. You know, if you want, if someone asks you, hey, I need to get into metal, what's it like? You'd probably just give them this album. It's a great album and it's a great introduction to metal as a whole genre. It's very broad, but I feel like Trivium really just put forth a great overview of the genre. I think I definitely liked the title track, Shogun, the best. I think it took us through a little journey. It is like 12 minutes long, but I liked what they did with the track and it was just a great way to end the album. I really enjoyed it. So I did look, I liked the album, but it wasn't super exciting. And I spoke to Kyle the other day and he said that he knew I wouldn't like it as much as I like some other albums. So there we go. But still, I listened to it. Yeah, just bread and butter metal. You know, chuck a bit of salt on there and that's a whole meal. But okay, all right. <laughs> Let's get to it. On this episode of Educate Ebony, I would love to introduce Lachlan Sheehan. He is an incredible sound technician and has traveled nationally and internationally with bands, making sure they sound ace. And years ago, I don't know if you remember this, but you fiddled with the sound in my car and I've never touched those buttons since. <laughs> now, I don't remember that, but that does sound like something I would do. I think I tend to piss people off by going into their car and immediately changing all the settings, putting loudness on and turning everything up. Yeah. I don't know where we were going, but you were like, oh, this sounds crap. Hang on, hang on. <laughs> I'm like, all right. I'm such a dick like that. I'll always do that. I'm just like, no, no, no. One of the things you always get as a sound guy is you don't want to hear bad sound anywhere. Yeah. <laughs> you actually don't want to be like hearing something from someone's crappy Bluetooth speaker or something. It's almost like irritating, you know? <laughs> but... It's annoying. You're too tuned in, literally. Yeah. Well, welcome to the podcast. <laughs> Thanks. Thanks you. for having me on. I've never done a podcast before. I've, I'm used to, as a sound guy, I'm used to being at the other end, you know? Yeah. I'm the guy that's facilitating someone else's conversation. I probably do need to ask you just for all of us who don't actually know what you do, because from our point of view... It looks like, you know, we're in the crowd and you guys just have the best view. So besides you, I don't know, fiddle with some little knobs up there. What exactly do you do to make band sound good? So every uh, instrument on stage is either going to have a microphone in front of it or it's going to be plugged in somewhere to a DI box. And basically, when you see a big sound console out the front, every strip, every fader, that's just controlling a microphone or a direct input. And all we're really doing is... uh, changing the levels, EQ, and doing a bit of compression over things and maybe putting some effects on things. And you just throwing the whole band sound together, you know? 
So generally speaking, though, we don't do magic. There's nothing crazy going on. Like um, if a band is crap, they're going to sound crap. And if a band is really good, all we're doing is just trying to balance that out and make that work within the room that they're in. Okay. That's pretty much what we do. Yeah. Okay. That makes sense. Is it something you can just set from the get-go and then like enjoy the show or you're always being like, oh, it sounds a bit off? I'm always working it. Um, and even if it's good, I'm usually just still working on um, writing guitar solos or changing the tempo of effects for every song and just little intricate bits like that. I would never stop, basically. There's never really a point where I'm just cruising unless it's maybe like jazz or something <laughs> where, you know, you just sort of mix in between the sounds and leave the mics up and let it happen, you know. So, <laughs> Do you like that, <laughs> doing that stuff? Yeah, that stuff's fun too. Everything's a different challenge and I've never pigeonholed myself anywhere. I sort of do anything from a school show to a corporate show to a rock show to a metal show if I have to. So, yeah, it, it's all fun. Metal shows are definitely the best though, hands down, surely. Oh, of course. Yeah. Of okay, course, good. yeah. <laughs> all right, well, tell me, I'm ready. What is the one metal album you think I need to hear? You may have got a subtle hint, not that this will be video recorded, but um, I'm here wearing a Masters of Puppets shirt. Oh, I, did, I didn't even click. <laughs> so, of course, it's 1986 Metallica, Master of Puppets. For me, this is probably, I don't know, not that I really remember. I'd say this is probably the album that really got me into metal properly. Probably as a young teenager, I was listening to Linkin Park and Limp Biscuit and P.O.D. and then... Somewhere in there, there was System of a Down's Toxicity, which was huge. And then you sort of go, okay, that's sort of this sort of new metal thing that was happening and hard rock. And you sort of go as a teenager, well, what does metal sound like? There's a band out there called Metallica. They've put the word metal in their name. <laughs> they must be a metal band. <laughs> I'll have a listen to that band and see if that's what metal is because people tell me this Linkin Park stuff isn't metal. And I think I got master of puppets for maybe my 14th or 15th birthday and maybe i'd listen to a little bit of metallica on you know rage getting up in the morning and recording it with vhs oh <laughs> you know I think metallica hosted rage around about the time that saint anger came out and they came down to two a big day out and so they put on a few videos of bands they liked which system of a down was one of them and caius and stuff like that and then at the end of the episode they had three and a half hours of Metallica video clips and live footage was just the end of their rage programming. Just, yeah, what have you got in the archive? Oh, we got three and a half hours of shit. Yeah, put that on. See ya. Lies <laughs> out. Bye. You know? <laughs> what a rough So start. I sort of watched all of that and particularly looking back at it now, especially as a sound guy, how they sounded live in about 1989 was the most visceral experience of sort of thrash metal that there kind of was at the time. There's a, a live shit binge and purge live album where they played the stuff, Master of Puppets, and um, by then they'd just released And Justice for All. And so they were playing that in arenas by this point, and it was huge. It was epic. But this little album with the crosses on the front, Master of Puppets, was still this um, fairly lo-fi, scungy thrash metal band that the boys made when they were, you know, in their early 20s. When they were still poor, they didn't have the money for big production. And it was sort of the peak of thrash metal in 1986, sort of around the time of Slayers, Rain and Blood. These guys put out the thrashiest album they ever made. That's huge. Yeah. Have you listened to the album yourself? No. 
<laughs> no. Like, oh, seriously, I keep waiting for like, you know, someone to come on the podcast and listen album, and I'll be like, ha, I tap this and do it. <laughs> Can't get me even that one. But literally, every single album, I'm like, oh, I haven't heard it. I don't think I've actually listened to a full Metallica album. Right. Like what random songs you've heard, are in there? You've heard little random songs, and you know who they are. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I've never sat down and been like, "Cool, let's listen to." What's what that is your impression of Metallica as someone who doesn't listen to them? Oh, you're not supposed to be asking me questions. I'm oh no, I can't, okay. I can't. I can't. Okay. I, no, I won't ask you questions because <laughs> no, what? What no. I would almost <laughs> so to cover Metallica very briefly. They were formed in '81, so they're coming up to their 40th anniversary this year. Yeah. So this is their third album, Master of Puppets. So they had first album, Kill Em All, which was sort of a really old school sort of thrash metal thing. Very youthful. They're just sort of out there chugging away on guitars. Their next album, Ride the Lightning, was a bit more progressive and got bigger with dueling guitars and stuff. And then somewhere in 1986, they put out this album, which was just balls to the wall thrash. There's almost no not even really a ballad in there. There's just straight up guitar chugging thrash metal start to the end of the album. So people now probably know as Metallica of being sort of one of the biggest sort of five bands in the world. Yeah. They're kind of one of the biggest after you sort of Rolling Stones and U2. Metallica is sort of right up there. They're now playing stadiums and they're sort of really overproduced. This is an album you pick up and it just sounds like four guys playing thrash metal in a tin can almost. It's it's not that well produced. Like it's, they obviously did some production, but it's like just this scungy sound of analog in the 80s of Marshall Stacks. And it's almost sort of Metallica as pure as they were before they sort of got all commercial and changed their sound over and over again. This was sort of their peak in my mind. Yeah. Well, to answer your question, what I think about Metallica, having not listened to them, my idea of Metallica is the whole, you know, What's that song? All That Remains? Is that them? Oh, my God. Is that them? The Memory Remains? What? Yeah. Oh. The Memory Remains? I'm shaming myself. Yeah. You know, <laughs> I guess you could say the commercialized stuff. I never really yeah. thought of them as actual thrash. That's the thing. This is when they were still thrash. So the first couple of tracks on the album, there's a song called Battery, which is probably the fastest song they ever did. And then the second song on the album, Master of Puppets, which is, of course, the famous song. There's a whole thing in that where as a guitarist, James Hetfield is only using a down pick on the main riff. What does that mean? What's a down pick? <laughs> Are we talking like... It's a pick stroke you would stroke down and then you would stroke up a lot okay. of the time. Like, da, 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 da. Yep. And a lot of that sort of thrash metal is all machine gun like... He did that whole riff doing only half of that. So the whole thing is going... So he had this sort of gnarly chugging motion that you wouldn't normally hear from a guitar player and it's a really difficult riff to play i actually mixed a metallica cover band recently of all things and they played this album start to end and the guy doing it and they, they were awesome they you know can't fault them but they he did actually stuff up a couple of the riffs in the song because it's it's really freaking hard to play and then they sort of had a couple of really heavy songs on the album. there's a song called uh, the thing that should not be which at the time was just this really chuggy down tune thing that was super super heavy and a song called welcome home sanitarium so they had all these sort of lyrical references to being in like a i guess in an insane ward a sanitarium i think there was some reference to um one flew over the cuckoo's nest and then they had just a bunch of songs about sort of war and stuff like that there was a song called disposable heroes because 
no we're only on audio but the album cover is like a graveyard of like a war graveyard of all crosses but then there's these strings on top of them and then these sort of red hands in the sky manipulating the strings like all the soldiers were just a bunch of puppets who were sort of you know led into the battlefield to die and there's you know soldier's helmet on one of the crosses so there were a couple of songs in there like disposable heroes and even battery sort of had all these sort of military references the other really significant thing about the album was that um uh sadly it was the last album that their bass player cliff burton played on all right so they had this bass player cliff burton who bass player who replaced him referred to him as the Jimi hendrix of metal he was this absolute shredder on the bass he played bass solos on their first album and he actually got songwriting credits on a couple of songs in this album and there's one called orion which is a second last track which was an instrumental which was it wasn't a bass solo as such but it bass was actually the lead instrument on it oh so that both guitars just sort of played a chugging rhythm and he had these sort of little bass solos in it and he started with an orchestrated bit with you know volume fades on the bass but um as he went to tour to support this album they had a tour bus accident the bus allegedly hit black ice on the road slid off the road and um i believe cliff went through the window of the bus and the bus landed on him oh no so that was the end of cliff that was um a point where the band could have broken up and they just sort of had to move on they had no time off and they went straight back out on the road and had to keep going so yeah they didn't even like cancel the rest of the tour yeah they canceled the rest of the tour and (laughs) and all of that but um they're at that point in their career where they didn't really have time to stop and they just had to keep going and fight through it, even though that's what happened to them. So, And look at yes. them now. And look at them now. Wow. That's crazy. Well, I assume that when you heard the album for the first time, I don't know, thrash metal is pretty jarring, but did it hook you or you were like, I'll come back to this later when I understand a bit more? It definitely hooked me. I think at the time, um, you know, probably being an angry teenager, you... <laughs> You go out and listen to music like Linkin Park or System of a Down and you go, okay, there's a couple of angry songs here and then, you know, maybe there's a ballad or a love song somewhere in the middle or like some sort of an ambient instrumental. I don't think until I listened to these guys that you could ever pick up an album that was literally just guys basically banging their heads against a wall for an hour. You know, (laughs) it wasn't a thing, you know, you used to hear anything you'd hear on the radio you'd you know maybe even a band like let's say the Foo Fighters oh I'm repping it right now yeah well there you go well see they'd have a song like all my life you'd hear on the radio and go wow it's a huge rock song yeah and then the next song you'd hear be like evermore or something which again is a big rock song but it's sort of a love ballad as a kid you never pick up an album like this where start to end is just angry hateful music (laughs) (laughs) It's just adrenaline and sweaty dudes just smashing their heads against the wall and making chugging guitar riffs. You're like, what is this? You know, it's, <laughs> and you can do this. And like, I think the band themselves were surprised. Yeah, they were surprised that people liked it. You know, they're at the shows and people are going back, master, master. And they're going, what? You like this? You know, <laughs> we're just a bunch of idiots who play this in a garage and people like this. You know, you'd never expect that a bunch of kids playing Bay Area Thrash would end up selling like 150 million records and being one of the biggest five bands in the world. But this was their first album to go gold. Oh, wow. And it did that with essentially no radio airplay and they didn't even make a promotional video clip. How did they do what? Just like tours and word of mouth? Tours, word of mouth and 
reputation of, hey, this is thrash metal, come buy it. Like, there's nothing else. They didn't even make a promotional video clip till their fourth album. I don't think that would fly these days. Not with this a metal album band. sold half a million copies in America alone in its first year. Certified gold, no promo video clip. <laughs> what? I feel like the only person who could do that or has done that is like Taylor Swift because she just was like, oh, whoops, <laughs> here's my new album. And everyone just screams and, you know, <laughs> drops their money. Yeah, or maybe like you too. Do you remember a stage of music piracy where, you know, people went, oh, we're tape recording songs off the radio. That's going to ruin music. And then then we had burnt CDs. Everyone went, no, you can burn a CD now. That's going to ruin music forever. And then we got Napster and everyone could download music. They went, no, that's going to ruin the music industry. And then at some point you got iTunes and then everyone went, fuck you, you've got a U2 album. Yes. Like literally you two just gave everyone an album they didn't ask for. It just appeared in everyone's iTunes library and went, here you go. Here's a U2 album. Enjoy. Yeah, that was, that was a bad move. <laughs> <laughs> don't, you don't do that. But is that almost like back in the day, you know, whatever the top 100 singles were, that was based on album sales. Like, okay, you sold more. The Beatles sold more than the Stones that week. Beatles are number one. There you go. Yeah. You wonder, like, because today you have the iTunes charts. If iTunes just give everyone a record, a U2 record, you go, they're number one today. But did we buy it? No, you didn't buy it. But there you go. There it is. <laughs> that's like that's like the same thing with our ARIA awards. Who are the people that decide this? Is there a board? Because the heavy metal category has never been correct. King Gizzard does not count as heavy metal. Like, and like, I think I saw votes? that. <laughs> they, made, they made King Gizzard... They gave them, what, a heavy metal award, did they? Yeah, it's like in the heavy oh, category or like the metal category that. or something. But like, That's so, hilarious. And they're not yeah. even a little bit metal either. They're no. like... Psychedelic rock. Super psychedelic, whacked out stuff. I mean, and there was a stage, even for rock, where um, this isn't Australian, but on an international level, I think Mumford & Sons won a Best Rock Award or something. And you go, they're a folk band. <laughs> You know, <laughs> I think it was the same with the Lumineers. They won something as well. And you were like, but why don't they win it in the folk category? Yeah. Who are these people? What do they know about music that they're making? Yeah. Who are these music critics that put Mumford and Sons in the rock category or King Gizzard in the metal category? I don't know, but it's not right. I think um, when Metallica released this album, mm. uh, I think Alice Cooper went to present award for best metal performance and Metallica lost to Jethro Tull. Come on, they're not metal. They're like prog. Uh, they're prog rock. It's, yeah. What do they call them? Flute metal. I think I've literally Flute only metal. heard about one Jethro Tull song, but I was like, wow, this is pretty <laughs> out there. <laughs> but imagine being like, the nominees are Metallica and the winner is Jethro Tull. Oh. Like, how did Metallica ever get beaten out of that? I don't know. That's a crime. Have they ever won any sort of big... Oh, they've won heaps of big stuff since then, I'm sure. And, you know, gone off and sold 200 million records. They're not, you know, they're doing fine. They're doing fine. (laughs) They're doing fine. (laughs) Well, as a sound tech, because you work with like live music and stuff, but does it come through on on record that you hear things that you're like, you know, would have preferred it this way or would have preferred it that way? I have two real ways of looking at that, which is um, sometimes if you were there making the record, it's almost like painting your house and seeing that you've missed a spot. 
you would be there forever obsessing over whatever you did and being like, oh, it could have been better if I did this. But to probably someone who picks up an album, whatever's there, it's almost like a Picasso art piece or something. Whatever's there might be an imperfection, but that's the record and that's how it is. And you wouldn't want to hear it any other way. Like I heard recently that Metallica have released a remastered version of the Black Album. And my initial reaction was, why? <laughs> that album is perfect. Don't touch it. Stop, you know? <laughs> like When they remaster an album, what do they do to it? I've always found that a bit of a mystery, but it's a long thing to explain the difference between a mixing process and a mastering process. But a mastering is almost just the final touch on an album. So someone's gone and mixed the multi-track, mixed every mic and every effect, and then they put it out somewhere. And another guy called a mastering engineer has grabbed it and gone, uh, okay, that bottom end isn't, you know, the bass isn't quite translating and the top end is a bit this. And he just sort of glues everything together and makes it sound the way it should through your speakers. And then basically pushes it out to a format that can go to vinyl or to CD or to digital at the right levels and stuff. So it's kind of the last bit of glue level balance, not level balance, just sonic frequency balance yeah so you're not going to really hear an album that sounds radically different from a remaster it's just going to sound a bit brighter and a bit more modern modern yeah so but the actual all the levels all the sounds that they recorded back in 1986 or 1991 are still going to sound pretty much like they sound (laughs) interesting so yeah so you just sort of ignore and be like this is the album regardless of what they did this is it pretty much and you know like i sort of did imply earlier like it's listen to master of puppets it doesn't sound like a modern album with big smashing bass and big bright top end it almost sounds like it's being piped down a telephone or something it's really raw and mid-rangey and scungy and there is sort of a clicky kick drum but it's not like a modern slipknot kick drum and there's a snare reverb but it sounds like it came out of a basement you know it just but at the same time you kind of see your sound as a sonic signature of an era as well you kind of these days people wouldn't be able to make a sound like that because the equipment we use now is too clean and pristine and you'd struggle to actually make something sound vintage enough to sound like that these days whereas back then they would have spent all this money to make it only sound that good and they must have thought it sounded brilliant at the time but now you look back at it and go it's kind of mid-range. You know. <laughs> <laughs> no one picks up a Beatles record and goes, ah, oh, that would sound better if it sounded like a Taylor Swift record. You just don't. Oh. It's, Beatles are Beatles and that was their sound and people would try and recreate it now and be like, oh, man, I wish I could recreate that Beatles sound. Yeah. So do you think that um, because obviously they had talent back then, but maybe yes. the recording wasn't, you know, or they didn't have enough money to make it as they may have wanted to, do you think they were surprised that people still liked it, even though it sounded crap, but their musicianship was good and that it just needed to get bigger to sound better to get even bigger? That's I weird. think so. And they, um, cause where they went from there is two albums later, they went and made the black album, which was a million dollar production. And they got the producer, Bob Rock, who had done Motley Crue records. And so they, they'd obviously sort of seen that their older records were lacking a bit of that big production to make them really huge. And, Bob Rock had sort of said to them, like, you guys have never made an album that's reached your full potential. And they were like, oh, oh, really? Oh, 
but he was right. And so he made the black album and they sold like 10 million copies of that and started doing stadiums, you know? So yeah, I think having an album that sounds like master puppets probably kept them somewhat in the underground sort of thrash metal scene that they are in. And at the time they were probably perfectly happy with that. So yeah. Wow. Metallica is just opening up a lot more, not opening up a lot of doors, but like, I think I'm realizing a lot more about Metallica. I had no clue about it all. Well, the podcast is called Educate Ebony, so <laughs> it's working. you're going to get off this and you're going to go back through Metallica's archives now and be like, oh, that's where that band got that from. Yeah, yeah. Oh, definitely. I mean, you've already mentioned the bass and how that's pretty cool, but when you listen to this album, uh, is there an aspect that you pick up or you've noticed over the years that you really love that maybe others wouldn't quite hear? Others like me. It's me. What do I need to hear in this album? Ooh. Uh, it's more just musically. I think it's, it is very important to try and listen to bass on Orion and stuff like that. Uh, a lot of it just musically, they've done really cool stuff. So there, there's a song called Welcome Home Sanitarium, sort of track four. I remember someone saying to me in high school, oh, that's in five, four. And I went, okay, it's in a slightly odd time signature. And then I was reading last night, it's not five four there's like one bar is in six four and then the next bar is in four four and the next bar is in six four and you know they just they weren't classically trained musicians and so they would just write a riff and it came out sort of how it did and they would be like yeah that sounds cool whatever and so Lars didn't know his drumming in six four he he probably just followed what the riff was and that's where they ended up and then later in their career in late 90s they went and played uh, a live album with a symphony orchestra and all the orchestra people be like oh wow you've done this and this time signature and that and that time signature that's really cool and they're like oh did we <laughs> <laughs> we don't know that <laughs> we uh, we just played a riff and we kind of just followed and here we are but you know when you have to have you know an orchestral composer chart that out for 104 orchestral musicians they're like whoa what's this <laughs> so that's that's amazing. That's just like talent on another level. Yeah, and they were very talented for the time. Another quick thing about the bass, which is this is well known within the Metallica sort of fandom community, is Paul Cliff Burton, who died, was replaced by a guy called Jason Newstead. And because the band obviously really loved Cliff, they really struggled with the fact that they had to bring on a new bass player after his departure. And they, it wasn't their choice. They just had to get a new guy. This poor guy, Jason, got rolled in and he was awesome and all the rest. But after Cliff, they didn't have a bass player that good anymore. There just wasn't one. And so the next album, Man, Justice for All, you can go home and listen to this. There's no bass on that record. Oh, what? He played on it. Jason went out there, went to the studio, did his thing, tracked the record. And the story is that Lars came in the studio one day as the producer was mixing it. And uh, the producer went, what do you think of the bass? And Lars went and just grabbed the fader and went, I reckon it sounds good down here and just pulled the fader <gasps> all the way down on the console. <laughs> Whoa. And that's where it went, you know, is it minus 40 or whatever? Like it might be in there just a tiny bit. And they basically made a whole album that didn't have bass guitar on it <laughs> because they hated him that much. Did he leave the band? Is he still there? No. He has left the band, but he actually stayed in for a long time. He was there for about uh, 11, 12, 13 years. Oh, okay. So he got better. 
Yeah. Oh, he was an awesome <laughs> bass player. He just he just wasn't Cliff. It's almost like if you had Jimi Hendrix playing guitar in your band and then you didn't have Jimi Hendrix anymore and someone went, this other guy's really good at guitar. And they went, well, he's not Jimi Hendrix. So yeah. this is what we do to his sound. We put it at minus infinity. Bye-bye. Wow. Yeah, that would not go down well at all. No. Oh, my God. Okay, obviously this album stands up in future time, so we're going to skip that question. But what are my listening notes? How should I listen to it? What do I need to be doing? Or certain, I don't know, tell me. Well, the band were all very drunk probably when they made it. Um, <laughs> no, they probably weren't. Uh, they were known for drinking. I could say that you should probably be drinking beer out of a tin, you know. You can't be having something nice out of a green bottle. It's You should probably ha- have a, a can of American beer or something and... <laughs> that, that's about all I can say for listening notes is probably on speakers turned up to 11 and you should probably be half cut. <laughs> I'm so uncomfortable. First of all, 11, odd number. Who does that? Come on, Lachlan. <laughs> Second of all, It's beer. one louder. <laughs> I don't like a lot of beer, but for this album, I'll do it. Yeah, there you go. That's the spirit. <laughs> it's, it's not an album to drink tea to. I could tell you that for free. And it's not, it's not a red wine album either. It's not a beard stroking album. It's a head banging album. I think I'm going to have a fun night. <laughs> I'll schedule it in. Nothing, nothing is going to happen to me the next day. I've got no plans. I will just listen to this album and I'll recover the next day. Exactly. There you go. <laughs> you don't have to have a whole case of beers like they would have, but you know, one moderately warm canned beer. And I think you'd be sorted. <laughs> We're drinking responsibly. Yes. Just one. Just, and don't drive after. You can't see the wink in over the podcast, but yeah. the winks are there. <laughs> <laughs> oh, nice. All right. Anything else to add about this album or the band that Ooh. I should know about? The only other thing was uh, I actually had to do my research on this to think, I know this album. I know what it sounds like and how it feels for me. I had to look up last night how it was made. Part of the story of how it's made was they tried to, I think this might come into how the sound is. They tried to book out Sound City, I believe, in... Um, Los Angeles, which is, you know, where Nirvana's Nevermind was recorded and all sorts of legendary albums and Fleetwood Mac albums and stuff like that. They couldn't get studio time. It was all booked out by Paul Simon or something. And they looked at the cost of it and went, well, LA studios are really expensive and we'd be there for 40 days trying to make this record. They went to Denmark to make it because Lars is Danish and they figured that it was a third of the cost to be in the studio in Denmark. So what if we didn't get the best Sonic record, but we spent three times as long making sure we played it right, getting the riffs right. So they, they actually chose lesser quality of sound for more quality of performance. That's cool. Yeah. So artistically, you know, I could, as a sound engineer, I could pick it apart, but at the end of the day, the sound is just there to capture the performance the musician makes. And they made a choice that they wanted more time to capture the best performances they could. So artistically, I would say that's a bloody good move. Yeah. Oh, very clever. All right. Well, I'm excited to listen now. So good. <laughs> good. good. <Yeah. laughs> it's good. I've got the power now. I've master of puppet style manipulated you into listening to the record. Now you have to. It's uh, I you literally put it to. on air. You are now obliged to listen to the record. I am. I, I literally do the listening notes. I sit down. Excellent. And I do everything. So um, I'll message you when I'm drunk and I'll be like, it's really good. Excellent. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, all right. Amazing. <laughs> there we have it. The one metal album that Lachlan Sheehan thinks that you and I should listen to is Master of Puppets by Metallica. 
Thank you so much for your wisdom, Lachlan. I can't wait to listen to it from your point of view. No worries. Uh, let me know how you like it. Yeah, a drunk text at 1am. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> All right. Okay. Are we yes. ready? Let's let's do it. This oh, is shit. Be good. Now I have to talk and stuff. <laughs>